Improvising. The multiverse is real. Improvise. Compelling. Innovative. Improvisation. It's magic. You know, make something up. Welcome to Think Like an Improviser. I'm Jeremy Richards. In this podcast, we explore how the skills and insights of improvisation can elevate your creativity, success, and well-being. My guest for this episode is Rick Stedman. Rick is an award-winning Seattle-based actor, improviser, improv teacher, audiobook narrator, and voiceover artist. He's appeared in several feature films, over a dozen national commercials, and on Criminal Minds and Marvel's Agent Carter. Yes, he is technically part of the freaking MCU. He's also the former education director at Comedy Sports LA, where he was a member of the main company for 19 years. Recently, Rick took on the role of artistic director for Comedy Sports Seattle. In this conversation, Rick shares how the practice of improvisation can help you demolish imposter syndrome, boost your confidence, and show up more authentically in everything you do. Rick, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And a full disclosure, you and I have known each other since 1995, I guess. 95, 94? Somewhere around there. Yeah, it was right around there. Yeah. Which is like 27, 28 years, which doesn't no, sound it's, right. It's, I don't it's think that math five is right. years ago. Yeah, it's- the passage of time is an illusion. I remember seeing you improvise for the first time back at Lewis and Clark High School's coffee house with Mike Tanner. <laughs> I still right. have this Our friend Mike. memory vaguely in my mind of just being like, who are those guys? What are they doing? This is not the type of improv that I've known in my low these many months of doing improv at that point. <laughs> well, and and it was also who are these guys? Because we went to a different school. Oh, that was the other part of it. Yeah. 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 It was like, why are these guys at our coffee house? No, uh, it was great. It was because I was friends that. with Angie. And, oh, yeah. All connected. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. And at that point, had you been improvising for a while in high school? That was our, let's see, that was, I think that was your junior year, my sophomore year, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a few years, I think I did like some improv in junior high. I really started doing it more regularly in high school. Two of my friends in the high school drama department were like, we should have an improv group here at our school. Want to start one with us? And I was like, yeah. And we started this group that we ended up naming Thesperados. Oh, which, no, that's ringing a bell. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly a better name than we deserved. It's a pretty good name. It's a good um, name. Yeah. And that group, as far as I know, is actually still going at that high school, which is crazy. Under the same uh, name. Under the same name. Like last I heard, they were still going. But yeah, so I started regularly doing improv i think my freshman year of high school which would have been the year before you and i met right and then we went on to form the uh, the sketch comedy group of legends the fresh makers which i also think is still a good name you know i think so too i mean like if we 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 probably risked um being sued for trademark infringement but that would have been the best streisand effect ever in terms of like yeah blowing up yeah, the, the notability <laughs> of this this high school <laughs> sketch troupe in Spokane yeah. being sued by yeah. a multinational conglomerate candy company. 
that would have been amazing. <laughs> Mentos, the fresh maker. Um, <laughs> it would have been great. But I, I like we started doing that. I hadn't done any or hardly any writing sketch uh, at that same coffee house that you saw Mike and me. We saw the sketches that you'd written and dragged some of your friends to to like be in, and we were blown away by these sketches we were sort of like eh, some of these guys don't really know how to act and they're clearly just sort of reading lines but like this is really funny <laughs> so mutual admiration right away yeah yeah thanks was there a point for you then that since this podcast is ostensibly about applied improv was there mm -hmm. a point early on where you realized oh this stuff actually is affecting my life beyond the theater i think for most high school kids who get into improv the first kind of effect that they get is the the sort of social effect of like improv tends to attract as as kind of ongoing practitioners it tends to attract people who don't feel like they fit a lot of other places there's a lot of sort of misfits and kind of odd ducks in improv and i could expound on the reasons that I think that is. But I think, you know, that was probably the first application was like, oh, I'm making all of these friends who I think are really cool and really funny. And like the sort of secondary application that came out of that too is like sitting around, like doing bits, making mm -hmm. your friends laugh. There's a lot of the, the kind of like rhythms of comedy and structures of comedy that you're learning and and you're using to make your friends laugh so i'd say those were the first kind of applications that i noticed and yeah, I, I, I definitely didn't think of them that way either. no not, maybe not making those connections right away but coming to some sort of new level of confidence and expression overall and e even for me you know in that period of time of coming into our own in high school and for me, feeling in a victim mindset, you know, growing up in poverty and still being freshly out of the halfway house, I think at that point when I met you, was like, I'm just kind of going along with the stream. And then in improv, there's this idea of like, oh, yeah, you can create your own scenes. You can initiate your own things. You can decide, oh, we're going to go to Perkins tonight or we're going to go to see you know, <laughs> just small initiations with groups of friends where where I was the one making suggestions had this, not to be too pretentious about it, but who are you talking to? This <laughs> almost existential, you know. No, I mean, like, you, for me. you get to have a kind of agency that you've never had before, like in the world. You you know, when you're, when you're doing improv, you are literally creating your own reality with other people. You know, I am God. Yeah, I think that that kind of stuff has a pretty big impact on a on a kid. And I mean, I think it explains part of why we keep doing it. Yeah, a lot of people get into improv later in life as professionals mid career, which is fantastic. <laughs> and at the same time, there's something special about discovering it in high school. And I still see that yeah. today with some of the high school teams that our theater supports. I'm sure you've seen it. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I work with a number of high schools down here in uh, in Southern California with their, their improv teams, uh, mostly through Comedy Sports LA, which has the 
nation's, maybe the world's biggest high school improv program. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's like 70 some schools. It's wild. But there's kids there that are doing it just because it's like a fun thing to do. And then there are kids there that have drunk the Kool-Aid and <laughs> are just like improv for me forever. Give it to me forever. Yeah. Yeah, and we can relate. We can see glimmers of ourselves at that age. Oh, or at this 100%. age. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's this formative period, obviously, of adolescence, of trying to figure out where you belong, like you said. And then this notion of imposter syndrome to wedge that topic in. But does that notion of imposter syndrome resonate with you at all? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. That's a yes. Uh, <laughs> No, I, I don't know if you remember, we had a conversation over the phone probably eight or nine years ago where I was talking, because, you know, you're one of my oldest and closest friends. Like, we've talked about a lot of stuff over the years, but I was talking about this feeling that I'd had, you know, for as long as I could remember. And you said, yeah, imposter syndrome. And I remember I burst out crying and said, it has a name? Sounds like you just have imposter syndrome. It all makes sense. Because it was that experience of like this kind of deep, dark, ugly pain that I had been carrying around and, you know, rarely verbalizing any any kind of way. And then to like to let it out into the sunlight and then be told like, oh, yeah, not only is that a thing that other people experience, like there's a name for it. So, yeah, I, it deeply resonates with me. It's something that. I'd say I still deal with is the wrong word, but like deal with, manage, work with. It's still something that is a part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's apparently, according to the research, 70% of all adults, at least those are, who are honest, have struggled with some sort of imposter syndrome at some point, if not more. Do you feel that there is an outlet or something about improv that can help us approach this idea of feeling like a fraud or feeling like we don't belong? Yes. There's a number of things and I'm going to try to kind of remember the different thoughts that I've got about this. But the first is when you're, when you're reckoning with imposter syndrome, you are by necessity, like deep in your ego, right? Like you're deep in yourself. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm not saying that like, Ooh, egotistical, just like you are in yourself. And you're very self-conscious, self-aware, right? When you are when you are dealing with this. And one of the things that I think improv at its best calls us to do is get out of ourselves a bit and connect, right? When I am focused on the, the other person or people that I am performing with, when I'm really focused on what they are doing and on listening to them and being affected by them and trying to communicate with them. You see people. I see you. When all of that is happening, there's not space for me. Well, there's not space for me, right? There's not space for me to be focused on my myself. I've got too many other things that I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with the reality that we're creating. I'm dealing with the emotions, the character, the, the relationship. I'm dealing with all of that stuff and the story that we're progressing. And there just isn't space. There's a thing. I learned this from my mom, actually. There's a thing when you are 
when you're performing, when you, you get this a lot when you're teaching as well. And it's called sublimation. Like there isn't space for you to be conscious of yourself because you're too focused on this other stuff. And when she told me that, I was like, oh, that makes really good sense because the root word is sublime. And you've had it a million times, I'm sure. Like you finish a show or you finish, you know, something where you're really focused and, you know, two hours have passed and you didn't even notice, right? It's Mm. just like, ah, and you just feel good. What is the Thomas Aquinas, like, relieve me of the bondage of self? Like Mm -hmm. it, it allows for that. Right. Yeah. So that's a really pretentious answer, but it's, I think <laughs> no, true. it's right up my alley. I think it's I, I think it's true. I think. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I I think either Nietzsche uses the term directly or indirectly. And then Walter Kaufman writes about it with the term sublimation, but about channeling energies that could otherwise mm-hmm. destroy us or overtake us or overwhelm us into something positive and creative. Yeah, in that way. Right. Yeah. One of the things that I have dealt with a lot over my lifetime has been depression. I deal with depression. I I know I'm not unusual in that either. There's a lot of people out there. And I've found over the years that if I can say yes to going and like doing an improv show, it can really, really help me. I don't necessarily feel lifted up after that. You know, I may still be in the depression, but I, I got an hour or two of relief. Mm. Right. Like I don't have to just be in it because depression is very inward facing as well. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of that stuff, I think, to improv. And I don't I think in that respect, it's not specific necessarily to improv. You know, I've had that experience acting or like I say, teaching. I'm sure, you know, like I think there's some of that aspect of like being in the zone that athletes experience. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That, that I don't because I'm not an athlete. But, but you do experience flow. It's just not the athletic yeah, type. Exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it, is that, it is that being fully present. Second circle is another way that like some improv people like to talk about it. Like Patsy Rodenberg type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I really yeah. love that. The, the, Something. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about Second Circle for those who aren't familiar with it? I'll probably do a terrible job synopsizing, but it's a way of talking about kind of three sort of states of being. First Circle is that very kind of it's inward and it's of the past, right? They'll say like depression is inward facing and it tends to be of the past. Depression is like of the past anxiety is of of the future right like it's what Mm. might happen and depression is like what has happened but like first circle is inward and and it can be like any of these states of being can be good or beneficial but like it is that place of being sort of inward and of the past third circle would be much more kind of broad and like external and and of the future and like you know, a, a very third circle performer is, you know, going to be coming in like a, you know, like a pirate, like a like a <laughs> boulder running through the stage. And second circle is that place of being in the present, of being in the now, hearing and seeing what is happening and expressing, but not being inward, not being outward, just kind of being. Balanced I, I know energy. I'm doing it. Yeah, balanced energy. That's a, yeah, there's benefit to any of those states of being. And like, we're also, we're humans, we're going to experience them. But as a performer, 
certainly that second circle, I think, is the most utile. You can be a little third circle or a little first circle if necessary. But if you're in that, if you keep bringing yourself back to that place of second circle, seeing the whole field. I can see everything. Right. So in short, the second circle is the golden mean between being totally drawn into yourself and disappearing into the wallpaper or being totally in someone else's face and way too extra. <laughs> yes. But you're able to step back in between those extremes to connect with people where they're at. Yeah. Your that scene was, partner look good. That was about 20 seconds to say what I think just took me like four <laughs> or five minutes, but yes, it's, that's, it's all yeah. helpful. It's all okay. helpful. It's interesting about improv in particular though, because I think some of these elements of getting into flow and getting us out of our heads is common to a lot of different practices as the research mm. shows. Um, I think it's insightful as well, as you bring up the idea of being egocentric, because I talk about that as well, that not in the judgmental Freudian sense of like you're being egocentric, but that you're focused right. on yourself. Yeah. And there's this John Hopkins University research, I don't know if you've seen it, where they're looking at jazz musicians and rappers in terms mm. of scripted versus improvised art. Oh, uh-huh. And you would think that there would be a universal experience of the music, and it's hard to say what's going on specific to improvising versus just following along with a right. script or with written music. But what they found was in these fMRI machines getting it's not the most natural environment, and I don't know how they right. get their you know instruments inside there, <laughs> but yeah. somehow they were able to get these musicians in a brain scan and look at the moment between when they were following the written music and when they said, okay, now improvise and gave them a little time to, to get into that flow. And what they yeah. noticed was that the parts of the brain responsible for the inner critic totally dampened down, even compared to when playing music that's, that's pre-written, you know, that the yeah, improv brain this. is different, right? Yeah, I've heard this and I've, I've heard it in discussion of like freestyle rap, and I mean, it, it makes good sense, right? Because if you've ever tried to do anything kind of challenging in terms of improv, if it is like, you know, if you're like trying to freestyle rap, for instance, which is challenging. Yeah, um, I'm terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm getting better as I stop telling myself that I'm terrible at it. Yeah, maybe uh, that's my imposter syndrome about rap. Yeah, it could I'm be, sure. could be. Yeah. But, you know, if you were thinking about like trying to do it right, you're screwed or to right? look like, good or yeah. Or to look, Oh God. Yeah. yeah. That's another of the, the things that I think like improv teaches that can help you with imposter syndrome. And it, it helps you with like being in the moment, being in second circle and is most improv you are doing with other people. Right. Yeah. And if you can put your focus on, you know, one of the things that we love to teach in like beginning improv classes is make each other look good, right? Yeah. If you can make your partner look good and they try to make you look good, you'll both come out looking awesome, right? If you are trying to make yourself look good, the audience can tell. And also you're probably missing what your partner is doing. Yeah. 
that's why I love the term allocentric. I don't hear it enough and it sounds like a wonky term, but it's the opposite of egocentric, you know? I like that. So, yeah, you know, just it, it helps me because there's not an easy synonym for that. There's the antonym of egocentric that we hear all the time. But yeah, be more allocentric. <laughs> right. Focus on, on other people for a change. Yeah. Get out of your head. We're literally being unself-conscious when we improvise. Yeah, and this this kind of stuff, it's also, I mean, it's a major aspect of being of service to others so that you can get out of yourself and do some things that you can feel good about. It's a major aspect of world religions, Western, Eastern, like you find it all over. It's it's a major aspect of like meditation and prayer, like all of these things. And I'm an agnostic saying that, but like there's, yeah. it's this through line that seems to be running through a lot of different kind of paths to wisdom and actualization. Yeah. Yeah. Loving kindness meditation, especially. There's some interesting research, right. though, that shows that too much mindfulness meditation that's inwardly focused, which is good to an extent, but you can overdo right. it to a point where you absolve yourself of your own guilt. That This one study <laughs> showed, a very recent study, actually, <laughs> where people felt less, <laughs> less, less guilty after doing too much mindfulness meditation. So they didn't have the <laughs> impetus to like actually act and and make amends with people right she's like no i'm wow. all good i just totally uh, neutralized it. it's like <laughs> i'm enlightened now the antidote to that was doing loving kindness meditation which is again yeah. outwardly focused other focused may you be well may you be happy may you find yeah. peace you know when we think about others so it's not to say that mindfulness meditation is bad or that loving kindness is the only way to do it but it really opened my yeah. eyes to be like aha meditation is not perfect and it has this dirty underside and a shadow to it and we can finally <laughs> feel smug about all those people who are better meditators than us yeah and the and the cure for this dirty underside of meditation is different meditation <laughs> always something that we're not doing yeah. quite right yeah man i was trying to think of other you know kind of direct applications that has to dealing with things like imposter syndrome mm. and i think one of them is a kind of a showmanship. Robert, the sun just came out from behind a cloud. It's really um, dramatic lighting on this side. Yeah. Good. Cool. Great. Man. Awesome. Uh, so, <laughs> so I've taught, I've taught how to play these games. And one of the big things that I teach is sell your joke to the audience, right? If you've got, if you've got a joke, it could be it could be the best joke ever, but if you sort of tell it like it's a stinky joke grenade, and you sort of like and you say the punchline and run back into the safety of where the other players are, the audience doesn't matter how good the joke is, the audience isn't going to laugh because they are worried about you, mm. right? Like, and you don't want an audience going, "Oh, honey, are you okay?" Like that's not right. That's the opposite of of laughter. But if you sort of if you go up and you plant your feet and you loudly and proudly tell your joke and even if it's not a joke you will get a laugh if you stand there and just wait <laughs> if you just hold your ground and wait you can tell a joke that is literally just not it's not funny it's not a joke there's no joke to it not funny that's not funny but if you hold your ground and you wait that audience will laugh it may take four or five seconds but they will yeah because they know that they can just kind of trust this moment and there's something innately funny about a person just standing there and proudly telling them nonsense 
you know. So there's this kind of aspect of showmanship and there's a lot of like there's there's a lot of other kind of kernels to it, but there is something to training yourself to 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 be in a place, right? And if you're acting yeah. confident, you know, for the for the course of a show, I'm not saying that you will then like move confidently through your life, but you've got more experience of being in a place of just trusting yourself. Mm-hmm. Even if you even if you like on the inside don't on the outside if you're projecting that you do right there is something to that right are stepping into the role of a version of you that's yeah. not fake but is making that leap of faith in your own capability to... yeah even if in your mind you're like this is terrible this is pointless and everyone right. is going to is going to rush the stage and stab me if you just which only happened like, a few times only a couple yeah like, yeah i mean we've all all got a few stab <laughs> wounds from our improv days yeah so yeah i used to have a class that i would teach and i would in the middle of this kind of larger exercise i'd just go okay you know you're walking around the room keep walking around the room don't worry about anybody else around you you're just you're doing your own thing right now Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've taken them through a number of other kind of acting exercises as they're doing this. And then I say, okay, now you are the sexiest person in the world. Yeah. You are the, you know, like, and they're just playing a character, right? So they get yeah. to just kind of, and I go, okay, great. Now we're going to do sexy entrances. We've got this door. So like, we're all going to wait here and you're going to do a sexy entrance and we're all going to swoon and applaud and be really like, Wow. And here's the thing, it's like people will do it and they're kind of playing the game and they're sort of, you know, they're they're sort of doing it jokingly. Yeah. But there is there's a, a power to just allowing yourself to be this thing that you don't think of yourself as. Yeah. It goes back to that, that thing in improv from high school where you can write your own reality and that's a new revelation, right? Right. And and, and I watched yeah. students like allow themselves to think of themselves as sexy some of them i think probably for the first time in their lives and mm-hmm. like it it was cool because they just like felt good for the rest of the class you know yeah and that might be more authentic than who they've been pretending to be all along so this yeah. idea of the of faking it it's like how do you know that the real fraud wasn't the person that you know you were oh, assuming I mean, yourself to be was. all along. Yeah. You know, it could have been like what, what this idea of fraudulence means, like this morality right. term of imposter that I'm, fake, you know, faking people out, that I'm doing something yeah. unethical is when I work at the cl- uh, coaching client or something and unravel that, it takes time, but you get to the root of like, well, who do you think you're supposed to be with other people? What's this idea right. of your true self, your ideal self? Right. Where did that right. come from? And what assumptions are you making and eventually there's this like aha moment of like oh yeah i'm always in a persona of some sort authenticity yeah. is not a fixed point right and i i remember like when when we were kids i don't know if this is still happening but when we were kids just a million different things that the message was be yourself be yourself right. and i remember even as a kid going like i don't know what that means <laughs> i don't like what does that mean it's yeah. that it's the, that moment in in I Heart Huckabee is that great existentialist comedy where the guy just keeps repeating to himself over and over, how am I not myself? How am I not myself? 
How am I not myself? How am I not myself? How am I not myself? And he spins out so hard that he ends up like throwing up in front of people in a boardroom <laughs> because he's, yeah, it is a question that is worth dealing with, but like be yourself is very confusing. Right. And if we're not so tightly wound around that idea of be your authentic self at all times and you're the only one who hasn't figured it out, then you can yeah. loosen up a little bit and be yeah. an improviser, whether you're on stage or off. And right. you're, you're freaking quantum leaping into different characters constantly as an improviser. So it sort of loosens up your psyche and your notion yeah. of like, because who are you we, to begin with? we move through the world with a narrative about ourselves right like yeah. all of us do we have this story about ourselves and and it may change given the context right like oh i'm you know i'm i'm telling myself a different story about myself while i'm talking with you than i am on a first date and i'm nervous right or mm. whatever this isn't but, a date i mean it's broke my heart man are you buying dinner because now i'm excited <laughs> uh, you should get a knock on your door from uber eats at any moment <laughs> i want the steak if you're buying, uh, yeah. sorry, you're you're acting we, differently. No, no, no. depending on the context. Yeah, you've got a yeah. you've got a narrative that that yeah. you're, that you know we're not conscious of most of the time, but we have a narrative. Improv is requiring you to just change that narrative over and over and over, and yeah, it's a narrative that you're telling about characters that you're playing, but like that line gets very fuzzy if you're in the moment. Yeah, it's coming from somewhere, and that is. The calls from inside the house. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and you know, speaking of telling absurd, meaningless jokes with confidence, can I share a joke with you that my seven-year-old just told me this morning? Oh my God, yes, please. When we were driving and she was in the back in her booster seat and said, what did one tree say to the other? What? Stop it, you're messing up my hair. And then she said, but trees don't have hair. They must've been talking about leaves. That was the part of the joke that, was, that really sold it for me. Was that, Oh, my like, God. As if she were just reporting an observation that she made. Just like, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. It was really weird that those trees said that to each other. <laughs> that is amazing. Natural improviser. <laughs> yeah. Kids oh, thanks, man. usually are. <laughs> this has been awesome. Is there anything I, sh I should have asked you? I mean, what I wanted for dinner, I guess. Yeah. I, no, I don't. I don't know. It's, you know, it's your, it's your nickel. So if, if nothing occurs to you, okay. nothing. And, and where can people find you online? They can find me at rickstedman.com. Nice. Uh, yeah. I have jeremyrichards.com. I think that's one of the advantages of our generation is capturing our names. Yeah. The Instagram is rickstedperson. You know, it's it. It's, it's fine. Right. <laughs> they don't need to find me. I'll find them. I'm coming to your home. <laughs> Good. All right. Exciting. Always a pleasure to see you, man. Likewise, Here. buddy. You can find more information about Rick Stedman and his work at rickstedman.com. I also featured Rick's story in my new book, The Accomplished Creative, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Forge Courage, and Tap into Limitless Creativity. Now available on Kindle, in paperback, and as an audiobook on audible.com. And the audiobook is narrated by myself, Tegan Cohan, and Rick Stedman. There you go. For more information about the book, this podcast, or to connect with me, visit jeremyrichards.com. Mentos. 
the Freshmaker.